When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. This week's episode is based on a paper that we gave at the 2023 Modern Language Association Convention in San Francisco. As part of the panel, Literary Criticisms, New Platforms, organized by Anna Cornblue for the Literary Criticism Forum. We structured our remarks in response to four questions, which we will ask each other in turn, that are a little bit different from the regular high theory fair. How does the experience of listening within our contemporary lived contexts change the substance and style of criticism today? So in 2019, before COVID, Before we started High Theory, I went to an N plus one launch party. It was winter in New York, the basement of a hotel in Midtown, with a bar that didn't seem to be serving drinks and a giant wall of speakers that seemed to serve solely decorative purposes. One of the editors read aloud an opening monologue about podcasts. What I recall is a line about intimacy, their voices so close to our ears. Reading back, the editors make a claim about media history. Podcasts were the first medium designed to be listened to primarily on headphones by a single person. They suggest that the form lends itself to binge listening. Each episode, a smooth little capsule, perfectly self-contained, can be popped one after another. Binge listening implies a kinship between podcasts and the golden age of television. The episodic structure makes consumption a process of easy repetition, where everything feels like packaging and waste. Streaming media, unlike radio and TV of another era, imagines a solitary individual receiver, isolated and choosing for themselves. Following this logic, we could trace the contemporary boom in humanities podcasting to the isolation protocols encountered by knowledge workers during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. And in truth, our podcast was a pandemic project, 
made possible by a newfound facility with digital media and comfort conducting virtual conversations, not to mention the lack of venues for academic authors to promote their books. But as the N plus one article suggests, this dynamic of isolation and intimacy was already well underway in 2019. An Americanist colleague gave me an alternate explanation that podcasts satisfy the neoliberal obsession with multitasking. We can learn about Sylvia Winter as we wash the dishes, catch up on political gossip as we fold the laundry, review Orientalism as we drive to work. Isolation is reinscribed as productivity. So, Sharonic, how does digital audio production perform the work of literary criticism within the new media landscape? Like much under our sun, these habits are not entirely new. The history of public education in radio form in several cultural contexts is marked by the co-location of everyday work and absorption of sound information that takes the listener out of the ordinary temporal idiom by promising futures with better economic and social capital. The critical theorist Theodore Adorno worked on one such radio program in the 1940s, albeit a short-lived one, run by the Princeton Radio Project. Listening to radio in your drawing room is, I quote, atomized listening for Adorno. The, quote, sound is no longer larger than the individual, and the surrounding function of music also disappears, end quote. Radio makes a piece of music an object of analysis for the listener by reframing it sonically between concert hall and drawing room. The edited nature of podcasts problematizes the voice, whether it is an uncut hour maintaining all the ums and coughs in the hum of the ambient, or a heavily polished product with strategic placement of music and sound effects. Taking care not to draw simplistic analogs, we ask what the humanities podcast can do for criticism and theory by reframing the sound of academic discourse from lecture halls, seminar rooms, and the reader's sub-vocalization to headphones and car stereos. Kim, how does the podcast form modify the relationship between the voice and the work of critique? If we follow Derrida's argument in the grammatology, the voice has always been privileged as a signifier of truth and presence in the Western philosophical tradition. So podcasts are nothing new. Or at least, to theorize speech in ascendant over the written word contributing a particular liveness to the discourse of critical inquiry is simply to inherit a conservative philosophical tradition that stretches from Plato to Rousseau, one that always imagines writing as secondary, inferior, degraded, even tacky. On December 22nd of 2022, I listened to an NPR interview with essayist Rax King about Lisa Carver's book of essays, Dancing Queen. And King kept saying voicey, as in, her writing is very voicey and very lively. And that's why I always teach her as the paragon of voicey writing. She also did this thing with her voice when she was looking for her page, where she sang, just a second, two senses of the word voice, the one you teach creative writing students to find, the other vocal performance students to train, both of which the podcast form is supposed to capture. But does it? 
interview, King uses a medical metaphor. Carver's essays are like that bright pink amoxicillin for kids, bitter medicine made sweet, so that they'll drink it. Following then, from Of Grammatology to Plato's Pharmacy, we might think of podcasts as pharmacon. Writing is a drug for Plato, both a poison and a cure, because of its ability to record thought permanently and externally. And the podcast is a recorded medium. Audio is digitized and edited, compressed and distributed through an XML protocol. Editing software works by making a visual representation of sound, transforming your voice into a waveform, scribbled on an axis amplitude over time. The voice in your earbuds may seem ephemeral, intimate, immediate, but it is a drug, an inscription, like all writing made of ghosts and absence. So, what does criticism do when it is sounded out and published in digital formats? Let me begin by asking another question. What can the Humanities Podcast do, not only as a finished product, but in the labor that goes into its production? At the Humanities Podcast Network, an organization that we co-founded with colleagues in academic podcasting, we advocate for the building of institutional systems of legibility. We seek to define podcasts as lasting contributions to scholarship, from grant allocations to tenure dossiers. Simultaneously, we imagine the extra-institutional future of the Humanities Podcast, and not least for our own, High Theory. In each episode of High Theory, we ask our guests how a given topic will save the world. Guests imagine maximalist scopes for their research, refute the discourse of salvation, and laugh at the apparent absurdity of the question. But we hope, in this way, to also return the speaker and the listener to the form of critique and the institutions whose borders influence their reading praxis, putting pressure on their definitional and instrumental limits. The putative limits of theory have been the subject of debates on social media, popularly termed method wars which have been astutely diagnosed by scholars like Kyla Wazana Tompkins as resource wars. Continuing the task of creative and critical reading in humanities departments with terrible financial insecurities pushes us past our limits. The pluralization of ends and proliferation of means for the work of theory requires us to redraw the boundaries of academic labor. The Humanities Podcast provides a space in which we can change the substance and style of criticism today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage your social media presence. Julia Arian Martins edits our transcripts. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. And Kim Adams and Sharnik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. 